reading is from Mark 9, verses 1-3. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might the second reading, Second Peter 1, verses 16 through 29. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along. Thank you, Matthew. Guys, welcome. Glad you're here. My name is John Trapp. I'm the campus minister for RUF here at Texas. So glad to have you all here. Uh, If this is your first time to RUF, just a little bit about what we are. Uh, RUF is not a place to be seen. We want RUF to be a place to be known. And we believe at RUF that we can make ourselves knowable to each other because of how God has made himself known in the Bible. In other words, the the God of the Bible pours out his grace on sinners. And if that's true, that God loves us because of his grace and not because of our works, then that means we can be honest about our sin, about our brokenness, about our messiness and neediness, and we can really be known. Like all the stuff about us can be known by God and by each other. It can be known by each other because God loves sinners. And if we are known and loved by him, by God, his grace, through faith, then that means that we can be known by each other too. And so really what we want RUF to be, and we don't do this perfectly, but we are striving for this. We want this to be a place where you can be known and be in a community. And if you're looking for that at Texas, Texas can be a big and lonely place where that's hard to find. And we want for that to be this for you. Um, If you're new here, if you haven't been here much, please let us get to know you. We want to get to know you. We're glad you're here. Um, Before we dive into this text that uh, Matthew read for us, let me pray for us and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much for the chance to be here together to gather around your word. And Lord, we pray now that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of all of our hearts will be holy and pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, this semester, we are trying to get to know who Jesus is through the eyes of this kind of fumbling, bumbling disciple named Peter. 
And we see, have we've seen, as we've seen already, that Peter often gets things wrong. He often fails Jesus. And yet, Jesus chooses Peter to be this key disciple and this key figure in the founding of his church. And I think that that's instructive about the kinds of people that God uses. And it's actually, at least in my case, gives me a little bit of hope. So I want to look at three things tonight about this story of the transfiguration of Christ. First, glory revealed. Second, a fearful response. And third, the grace of glory. Glory revealed, a fearful response, and the grace of glory. So first, glory revealed. All right, look, all of us, whether you admit it or not, we all love glory and we want glory. And we chase tastes of glory. I got, I got, I think y'all will probably relate to this, an amazing taste of glory this Saturday at the Texas TCU game. I mean, how awesome, let's go. Yeah, come on, hook them. Um, it was my first Texas football game. So you're welcome. We were the good luck charms. And it was Owen Trapp, my seven-year-old son's first Texas football game. So we were both kind of the newbies. And we went with, is Thomas Fitch here? Thomas? Yeah, what's up? We went with Thomas Fitch's dad. Uh, he got us tickets. And so we went and sat in their family's seats they've been sitting in for a while. And it was so fun and so interesting to see just how much enjoyment we can get out of something like football and how much it can really be like a true taste of glory. I'm not overstating that when I say this. Like when Trey Watson scored that first touchdown to go up seven to three, I didn't know that Dr. Fitch, Thomas's dad, is a hugger until that moment. He's a hugger at the football games. He turned and was like, yeah, just like embraced me. He was like, oh, you're like full on hugging. Here we go. Okay, let's do this thing. It was awesome. And there's people that I had never met before were high-fiving. People are just going crazy over this touchdown. It's seven to three. The game's not even close to being over yet. And when Colin Johnson like made the full-on diving catch in the end zone, like it was hug city then. I mean, it was, people were going crazy. And it was really, there's this thing that happens in those moments where it really is like a taste of glory. And it's almost something I'm telling you, as I sat in that building, I was reminded of the reality that we are all made to worship something. Because the closest thing to a church service or to a worship service that's not a church service is a football game. It is the secular worship service. We all arrive at these massive temple-looking buildings, and we walk into them, and there's music playing. And there's, there's like a whole order of worship or a liturgy, you could say, to the whole thing that's happening. There's standing up when you're supposed to stand up. There's call and response, like in a liturgical service. Texas! Ah, my son was so confused by that. There's, there's the fight song that comes on after the touchdown is scored. There's all of these rhythms to it. And the reason that we do that, and then we see this, this, the touchdowns 
happen, and we immediately want to be reliving it. So we put it up on the big screen, and we all watch it together, and we celebrate again. And this is because that's what we were made for. We were made for glory. Each one of you was made for glory. And the world is filled with tastes of glory. Listen to how C.S. Lewis reflects on this reality. He says, The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them, not in those glorious things. It only came through them. And what came through them was a longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are, I love this, listen to this. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found. The echo of a tune we have not heard. News from a country we have never yet visited. See what Lewis is saying, what you experience in that football stadium on Saturday is that our world is filled with tastes of glory. And Peter and James and John find themselves on this mountain with Jesus. In Luke's account, we know that Jesus was just praying and Peter and James and John are around him. And all of a sudden, he's transfigured before them. That's a weird word. The the Greek word is metamorpho. You can kind of hear two semi-familiar words, metamorpho, meta meaning change, morphe meaning the the Greek word for form. So Jesus' form begins to change before them. And in verse 3, you see, he becomes intensely white, whiter than anything we could imagine. Um, He's so bright and brilliant and shining that Matthew, in, in his recording of this, that it's His face shines like the sun. And then you see that as he is shining before them, he meets Elijah and Moses, these two heroes of the Old Testament. And when a a Jew would think about Elijah and Moses, they would also think about what they would represent. Elijah, the greatest of the prophets. Moses, the one who gave us the law. And that is how they referred to their scriptures It was Moses and the prophets. And so here, as Jesus is shining like them before the sun, like the sun before them, you have these enormous Old Testament figures standing in Jesus' midst. And these are also men, Elijah and Moses, who both, they met with God on mountains. Both times in the Old Testament, when you see them meeting with God, it's on mountains. And when Moses comes down from the mountain and on Mount Sinai, his face is so brilliant that Israel, the Israelites can't look at it. They make him put a veil over it because his face, is, his skin is shining from having been in the presence of God. But interestingly, in the Mount Sinai account with Moses, his face is shining like the moon. Like, you know how the moon shines, it reflects the brilliance of the true source of energy, the sun. And so Moses' face is 
It's reflecting the glory that he's been in. But Jesus, Matthew says in Matthew 17, his face didn't shine like the moon. It shone like the sun. In other words, the source of all the glory, the source of all the energy, the source of all the glory was Jesus. This is really important. Let me tell you why this is really important. It means that the disciples were seeing for a moment who Jesus really is. He was pulling back the veil and letting them see who he really is. That he is, he is fully God and also he's fully man. And for a moment, he lets them see just what it means that he is fully God. And let me, let me suggest what this means. It means that Jesus is the source of all the tastes of glory that you enjoy. Do you know that means that Jesus is, that God himself is not boring? That every glorious moment that you've enjoyed, whether it's watching your football team win a big game. When I was at Vanderbilt for college, the biggest game we won was we beat Kentucky. And we were so excited we tore the goalposts down. How pathetic is that? Isn't it sad? It was our first SEC football win in five years. And <laughs> I was asleep for the whole game too, by the way. I missed the whole thing. Um, we tore the goalposts down because it was a glorious moment. We'd finally beaten another team in football. Every glorious moment, that is a t- it's a taste of the glory of God. He's the source of it all. Every glorious meal that you've had, like the first bite of that taco that you just love that you can't wait to get, and then you sit down and you get it, and it's on your plate and you eat it, that glorious moment, he's the source of it. He thought it up. It's from his mind. Every like, good belly laugh that you have with a friend, or if you like, really love adrenaline sports or roller coasters, that's from the mind of God. Things like velocity and G's, you know, or whatever. I mean, Grant Schertz can tell you more about that. I don't really understand that. But God is the source of all of these amazing, beautiful things, dancing, good music, parties. He's the source. And all of these are tastes of glory. And what Peter and James and John see is they, they begin to see the source of the glory. The glorious one. And the source of the glory is there and he's in the midst of these Old Testament figures. And what this is telling us is that Moses, who represents the law, Elijah, the prophets, that all of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, they're culminating and pointing towards the glorious one. It's all about him. They're meeting with him. They're talking to him. It's why in Luke 24, Verse 27, after Jesus is resurrected, he meets with the disciples and it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It means that the whole Old Testament, the whole Bible, the whole world is pointing to the glorious one. The one where we find all of it. And you know what this is also doing? 
this also pushes against the idea that there's kind of these two gods in the Bible. That there's this surly, grumpy Old Testament God. And he's just kind of mad about stuff and he gives you commandments. And he's kind of a grump of an old dad. But then, like, Jesus comes and he's, like, pretty cool. He's kind of a hippie and he's homeless and, like, hangs out with people and gives them food and heals people. And, like, I'm down with that guy. What this is saying is that the same glory that Moses encountered that was so brilliant and shining and made his face shine like the sun, the Shekinah glory cloud of God that we see in the Old Testament, it's the same glory that is in Christ. Jesus is God. It's why the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what the God of the Bible is like, look at Jesus. This guy whose first miracle was to make wine at a party to give people tastes of glory when the, when the good wine had run out. He's this guy who stops and listens to beggars while he's on his way with important stuff to do. He's this guy who's patient with doubters. He's merciful to the sick. He's kind to children when his disciples are acting like he's too big of a deal for them. He's gracious. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus because he's God. Secondly, though, I want you to see the way that Peter responds specifically as he witnesses this happening. This incredible moment is happening that only Peter, James, and John are privy to. They're seeing Jesus' glory unveiled and transfigured before them. And then Peter just like can't help himself he has to start talking he just speaks up and he's like um this is a good thing like maybe we should camp out make some tents just hang out here for a little bit and I love verse six most uh most scholars think that Mark was written by this guy named Mark and and he was writing it and transcribing it from Peter's account so there's all these fun little details about Peter Uh, that you would only have gotten if someone was really there uh, seeing it and watching it happen, and that that you get that in Mark. And in in verse 6, it says, Peter said this, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Peter's just like, man, I didn't know what to say then. I was freaking out. And I love, this is just a great firsthand detail that also kind of like gives credence to this is an eyewitness account. Like, if, seriously, this is actually kind of, from a scholarly standpoint, kind of important. Because if you are making up a religion and you're founding it on this guy named Peter, you would not have him be afraid all the time or, like, doubting what's going on. They're going to walk down the mountain, like, questioning stuff. And what you see, what, if you were making up the Christian religion, you would make the founders of the religion look awesome all the time. That would be the rational thing to do. So why isn't it awesome all the time? Because, like, 
they're just telling you what happened. They're just giving you an eyewitness historical account of what they saw. It's what he says in 2 Peter 1. I bore witness to it. I saw it happen. Um, this moment, though, that Peter is seeing in verse 5, he says, it's good we're here. And it's, it's so good, Peter doesn't want it to end. Peter doesn't want to go back down the mountain. He's like, man, we're like in the presence of God's glory. This is amazing. Let's just hang out here for a while. Can we call time out and just chill? And, man, I, I would imagine that some of you have felt that before. Where maybe you have had a mountaintop experience with God. And you kind of just want to hit the pause button on that. And just stay there. And that's what Peter wants. But that's not the Christian life of being a disciple. You see, being a disciple is doing, it's actually doing the work of the Lord. And Jesus has just told them, we talked about this last night, last week, but the passage right before this, Jesus tells them what the work of the disciple is, and Peter doesn't like it. He actually rebukes Jesus because Jesus, after Jesus confirms that he's the Messiah, Jesus starts to talk about how he's going to die. And Peter doesn't like that. Peter doesn't like the work of the Lord. He wants the glory. He wants the glory without the gauntlet. He wants the crown without the cross. But Jesus says, to follow me, you have to take up your cross, Peter, and, and, and come after me. To deny yourself and die to yourself. And again, this is really interesting. In Luke's account in the Transfiguration, we get to know Luke records what Jesus, Moses, and Elijah were actually talking about. Listen to this. Uh, this is Luke 9, 30 through 31. It said, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. See, what Moses and Elijah began talking about, they began talking about his departure, or exodon is the, um, the Greek word for it. It sounds like exodus, which again harkens back to the Old Testament story of salvation when God brings his people out of sl- the slavery of Egypt Jesus is going to lead an exodus out of the slavery of sin. And the way he's going to do it is he's going to go to Jerusalem. And Peter knows, I don't like that plan of what's going to happen in Jerusalem. I don't want to go down off this mountain. You guys are talking about you're going to go to the cross and stuff. We're not going to do that plan. Let's stay here. Let's stay here. And none of the rest of the world needs to know about your glory. None of the rest of the world needs to hear the message. Let's just keep it here for us. Because Peter's afraid. But God, as we see over and over and over again, is gracious to people who are afraid. So I want, to see, I want you to see finally the grace of glory. God the Father responds to Peter. Peter starts talking, it's good that we're here, let's set up some tents. And then the, the next person to respond is this voice from the cloud. God the Father speaking. And it's so interesting what he says. This is my son. Now God could fill in the blank with anything right after he says that. This is my son. You better start acting right. (laughs) Right? This is my son, whatever. He says, this is my son. Listen to him. Peter, stop talking for a second. 
This is my son. Listen to him. Frederica Matthews Green, um, who is a Christian writer, she explains um, what that experience of listening to Jesus was like for her when she converted. She says, almost 24 years ago, I walked into a church in Dublin, in Dublin and I was a Hindu. And I walked out of the church a Christian. I had an unexpected confrontation with the presence of one I discovered to be my Lord. I was sent reeling. I knew I needed operating instructions quickly. I particularly wanted to find out who this Jesus was, so I hunted up a Bible and plunged into the Gospel of Matthew. I disliked it from the start. (laughs) Jesus was abrupt and hard-edged. I disagreed with some of the things he said. I was offended, but something happened in my heart. The confrontation in the church had knocked a hole in my ego. I knew at last that I didn't make the world. I didn't know everything. And it was time for me to sit down, shut up, and listen. Kept working my way through the Gospels, and they began working their way through me. There are still parts of the Bible that I don't like. But I like the parts I don't like. Because I know that's where I need to listen harder. So what the Father says to these disciples is, this is my son, listen to him. And I think this is so beautiful because, you know what the first words of Jesus are to them? Again, this is from the Matthew 17 account, kind of piecing these together from each one, each account. The Father says, you need to listen to him. And then suddenly, it says immediately, Like, everything is gone. Jesus is looking normal again. The disciples are cowering in fear. The Father has just said, listen to him. And the first thing Jesus says is, arise, don't be afraid. Like, Peter, you're so afraid. Afraid of not getting the glory. Afraid of things not being okay. You're afraid of picking up your cross and following me. Don't be afraid. Brennan Manning, uh, in reflecting on this passage, he says, if you don't have to be afraid of God, you don't have to be afraid of anything. Jesus looks at these guys that he loves and he says, don't be afraid. It's okay. You don't have to be afraid of my glory, you don't have to be afraid of missing out on it. You don't have to be afraid of getting all of the glory that you want now. By the way, that's like the root of FOMO, fear of missing out. Is that like we, we wouldn't get all the tastes of glory that we want now in this life. And so we, like, if, if I don't get enough, then I'm not going to be okay. And so we're always afraid of missing out. You don't have to live under that pressure of getting it all here and now. Instead, we have an eternal hope of glory. And it's true. That's why I had that passage in Second Peter printed for y'all. So you can see Peter is saying, listen, we were eyewitnesses to this. That's what he says in verse 16. We saw this. Jesus is God. Not only that, but he has given us his word. 
so that we can listen to him. It's why in verse 20 he says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What that means is is that this word that God has given to us, God, it's, it's, it's God breathed. Like, he has given us this so that we can listen to him and know him and so that he can tell us, don't be afraid. I'm gracious. I'm for sinners. I'm for you. Because he's gone before us. So I have uh, this fun book that I read through this summer. It's called Small Miracles, Extraordinary Coincidences from Everyday Life. It's written by two Holocaust survivors, actually. And... Um, I'm going to read one of these small miracles to you. A queen, these are all, these are all true stories. A Queens, New York woman leaned out of her eighth floor tenement window and screamed for help. She was trapped in her bathroom. The inside doorknob had fallen off when her youngest child, age two, had closed the door from the other side. By the way, we've totally been locked into our own bedrooms by our kids. Happens all the time. Just get ready. Um, Two of her other children, age four and five, were in the kitchen alone as supper cooked on the stove. The woman alternated between trying to break down the door herself and shouting to be heard out the window. Both courses seemed futile, and she uh, she was beginning to give up hope. Meanwhile, a young man who lived 20 miles away happened to be visiting the neighborhood that day. From the street below, he heard the woman's pleas. He waved his hand to catch her attention and screamed out, I'm coming up to help you. A short time later, she heard his voice from outside the bathroom door. Listen closely, the young man instructed. Put your fingers in the holes where the knob should be. Pull it up, lift the door slightly, and then quickly pull it open. The woman followed the stranger's instructions, and within moments, the door was open. Once freed from her temporary prison, she ran to check on the children. In response to their mother's screams, they had become upset and needed some coddling to soothe their cries. When all three children were safe within her view, the woman turned to the young man and asked in amazement, how could you possibly have known how to get into my apartment? And how did you know how that door opens? I know very well, he answered with a smile crossing his face. I was born here. I lived in this apartment for 15 years. I know how to get in the door without a front key and the bathroom knob. It would always fall off, and we learned to open the door just the way I showed you. It was his apartment. Isn't that insane? (laughs) Here's the thing. The reason that you trust in the glorious one who tells you not to be afraid is that he has gone before you. He has gone before you to the cross. He has walked in your shoes. He has lived the life that we could not live. He has died the death that we deserve. He has gone before us and entered into our life so that we can be rescued. So trust him. Trust the glorious one. Trust trust in the one who every single taste of good in this world that beckons you that there has to be something more. He's the source of it. He's the source of it and he beckons you 
to listen to him. And so my question is, do you listen to him? Listen, his disciples struggled with this. They're walking down the mountain in verse 10, and it says they are questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Like, they're not listening well. They don't get it. He's told them over and over what it means. They still don't get it. But Jesus dies for people who don't listen perfectly. He dies for them, for people who don't always get it. And so my question to you is, will you put your imperfect faith, imperfect faith in the perfect Savior who set aside his glory, he entered into the muck and mire of this life to save any wretch like me or like you? So put your faith in him. He loves you. Don't listen to yourself. Don't trust yourself to get your own glory. Listen to him. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that we can gather together around your word. We thank you that you are the glorious one who's come into this world and into this life to rescue us. We pray that your spirit would be at work helping us to see that this is true. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing one more song.